I'm Michael Tamlin, CEO of the global ebook store Rakuten Kobo. We have a regular procession of authors who visit the Kobo offices. While they're here, I get a chance to learn a bit about their careers, creative process, and their reading and writing lives. And hopefully, you will too. Welcome to Kobo in Conversation. I'm Michael Tamlin, CEO of Rakuten Kobo. My guest today is Omar El Akkad. Omar is a first-time novelist who, as a journalist, has been in the thick of recent history. Afghanistan, Guantanamo Bay, the Arab Spring, Ferguson, Missouri. He's a recipient of Canada's National Newspaper Award for Investigative Reporting and the Goff Penny Memorial Prize for Young Canadian Journalists, as well as three National Magazine Award honorable mentions. As with each of our guests, we'll ask him to tell us about three books the book that had the biggest influence on him in childhood, the book that was most formative for him as a writer, and the books that were central to the writing of his current book. And along the way, we'll be talking about American War, which was also a nominee for Canada Reads. Omar Alakad, welcome to Kobo. Thank you so much for having me. American War gives us a United States torn apart by climate change, North versus South violence, a man-made plague. People are refugees, are displaced, are on the move. Our characters grow up in refugee camps and detention centers. One of the key themes of American war seemed to be that war strips people down to their essentials. In peacetime, we have the luxury of being different, but when everything is taken away, we become more and more the same. Why was that something that you wanted to explore? Because I spent a significant portion of my adult life, and certainly the 10 years I spent as a journalist, watching the kind of mass delusion that assumes otherwise. Which is to say, when people ask why I started writing American War, the closest thing I have to a Genesis story is this very vague recollection I have from many years ago of watching this interview. But it was an interview with a, with a foreign affairs expert. And the interview was taking place in the immediate aftermath of a set of protests that had happened in Afghanistan. Local villagers were protesting against the U.S. military presence. And the question that was put to this gentleman was something like, why do they hate us so much? And as part of his answer, he noted that, you know, sometimes the, the special forces have to go into these villages and conduct nighttime raids looking for insurgents. And when they do this, they'll sometimes ransack the houses or hold the women and children at gunpoint. And then he helpfully added, and you know, in Afghan culture, that sort of thing is considered very offensive. I thought, you know, name me one culture on earth that wouldn't consider this sort of thing offensive. And that's when I first started thinking about this idea of taking the conflicts that have defined the world in my lifetime. And these are conflicts in which Western and and specifically U.S. involvement has either been indirect or from a great distance and recasting them as elements of something close to home. And I couldn't think of anything closer to home than a civil war where you're fighting yourself. The whole point being to say, no, these people aren't behaving in some kind of fundamentally foreign or exotic way. You know, there's a line in the book that says the universal slogan of war is, if it had been you, you'd have done no different. That's sort of the thesis statement of the book, and that's what I wrapped the the story around. Tell me a bit about the book you were reading when you were writing American War. This is a strange one. Nobody ever guesses this one. The book that influenced me the most when I was writing American War is a book called uh, Let Us Now Praise Famous Men by James Agee, photos, I believe, by Walker Evans. So this this book is uh, it's nonfiction. What happened was uh, Agee was dispatched by a magazine to go into the South and write a f- magazine feature about Southern sharecroppers. This was around Depression era, sort of 20s, 30s. 
And so he goes down there, and he lives with three families for a significant period of time. And then he comes back to the magazine, and instead of giving them a magazine article, he's given them something like six or 700 pages of text. And they say, get the hell out of here. We're not going to run this. This is not what we asked for. So instead, they end up publishing this book. It's a doorstop of a book, borderline unreadable, very self-indulgent in places. But it also is the finest example I've ever seen of somebody taking the time to really detail the minute portions of a life, a life that doesn't have much volume. You know, these sharecroppers had no agency. They had very little say over what they did and what was done to them. And this guy would spend 20 pages describing a bedroom, and he would spend 10 pages describing the breakfast ritual. And there's a reason the first half of American War is very, very slow. is <laughs> because I sat there and described the hell out of everything because I was in the middle of reading this book, and I was fascinated by the fact that A.G. found it vital to put this down on paper and say, this is the life. This is the life that's very easy to ignore. Later on, I went and read his famous uh, novel, A Death in the Family, which pound for pound is the most beautiful novel I've ever read. Every sentence in that book is magic. He's an incredible writer, but that book, Let Us Now Praise Famous Men, really sort of fixed my worldview when I was when I was writing American War. You've described James Agee as someone who makes small voices loud. Is the main character in your book, American Wars, Sarah T. Chestnut, is she one of those small voices made loud? Very much so, I think. One of the things about the book is that it there's no character in the book that the reader can side with and not assume some amount of moral debt. There's no good guys and bad guys and a big dividing line between them. Surratt is certainly a case example of that. She's a very different human being at the end of the book than she is at the beginning. And much of the book is centered around that transformation. It's centered around how somebody can go from being a fundamentally good and decent human being to being the exact opposite. And my whole point is not to make someone sympathize with her or like her or apologize for her. I simply want them to understand how she gets to the place where she ends up. And so in that sense, not only Surratt, but her entire family are voices that most of the time you don't hear. In wartime, you don't hear these kind of voices. You don't hear the voices of the displaced, of people who've lost family members, of people who've lost their homes. And so a lot of the book is about inversion. And one of the things I inverted was to take that very quiet, what would in a typical wartime situation be a very quiet voice, and turn it into the loudest voice in the room. The book encompasses, as you say, insurgency, refugees, both terrorism and the conditions that make terrorism take root. All things that I imagine were either in the background or in the foreground as you were covering places like Afghanistan and the Middle East and Guantanamo Bay, were there certain experiences that you had as a journalist, whether events or emotions, that you absolutely wanted people to experience in American war? There were. I mean, my journalism influences the book in, in a number of ways, one of which is very superficial, the, the scenery of the book. For example, the layout of the refugee camp in the book, those tents look a lot like the tents in the NATO airfield in Kandahar and a place called Camp Justice in Guantanamo Bay, which is where they put the media when you go down there. So on a very superficial level, you know, there's a wastewater ditch in the book called Emerald Creek. That's a real thing. You're walking around the NATO airfield in Kandahar. You can smell it from 10 miles away. It's awful. But there was also the sort of residual experiences of those assignments, things I couldn't get out in a work of nonfiction. 
And those were much more slow-burning things. So I said earlier that, that a lot of the the book is about a person's transition from fundamentally good to fundamentally evil. That's radicalization. That's how somebody becomes a terrorist, how somebody becomes an extremist. That was my first big assignment. I got hired full-time on a Monday in the summer of 2006, and I think on that Friday, we had the biggest terrorism arrest in Canadian history, the Toronto 18 case. And I spent the next two years of my life writing about how a bunch of kids, and some of them were kids, some of them were 17 years old, from Mississauga, suburban upbringing, the most boring sort of existence, regular suburban life, could go from trying to figure out who to take to the prom to building detonators off of YouTube videos. And a lot of the things I learned during that time end up working their way into the book, uh, one of which is the very slow process of radicalization. You don't just go up to somebody and say, hey, strap a bomb on your chest, let's go. You start very, very slowly. You pick at their insecurities. You find the things that they are most insecure about, whether that they don't feel they're being religious enough or they don't feel they belong in their school or, you know, whatever it is. And you chip away at it very, very slowly. And that formed the basis of Surratt's radicalization in the book. Um, but that was all from covering this one news story for two years straight. And in, the, in that process you described, there's also this creating of new histories or of alternative histories to help reinforce that radicalization and that narrative. Was that something that you uncovered as you were doing those interviews and as you were piecing together how that radicalization took place for those young men? Sure. I mean, it, it, it's a cycle and it's a cycle that feeds off of itself. So I rewrote the opening chapter to American War about 12 or 13 times. Most of the middle is, is pretty much the way it, it is, but the beginning and the end I rewrote over and over and over again. The very first opening line of American War in the first draft was something like, revenge is recursive. And it was about this idea of, you know, why did you bomb their house? Well, because they killed my cousin. Why did they kill your cousin? You know, that, that sort of thing. And it, it, there was one time I was covering the story of the minute details of, of radicalization, how it happens, how these recruiters or mentors, you know, radicalizers, get people to do ultimately what turn out to be very, very evil, destructive things. And I was being told this anecdote about one of these recruiters sitting one of these kids down and saying, hey, did you hear about what they're doing to your people in Kashmir and what they're doing to your, your, your people in, in Chechnya and Bosnia? And did you hear about this? And it was interesting because a couple of the things they slipped in had never happened. They were entirely invented. But you don't buy that kind of thing piecemeal. You buy it all or nothing. And so once you get into a place where you can talk about the atrocities that have been committed to our people, you know, against our people here and here and here, you can insert some, some entirely made-up things in there. And once you get past a certain point, the overlap between fiction and fact is in complete. And you're basically working in the field of, of make-believe. But you've achieved your goal. So that was, that was a big part of it. And that was one of the things that stuck with me is how once you get past a certain point of buying in, you're done. You're all in. You're all in. The journalist's life is on deadline. You're in dialogue with sources, with subjects, with editors. A novelist's life is both more solitary and more stationary. How was it making that adjustment? American Wars is the fourth novel I've written, but it's the first one that's ever left the hard drive. The first three I wrote, when I got done reading them, I decided they weren't very good, so I never really showed them to anybody other than my best friend, and, and that's why I did. But I never tried to get them published or anything. And American War was actually in the same boat. When I was writing it, I was still working as a journalist. I had no publisher, no agent, no book deal, no expectation it would ever see the light of day, which was liberating in its own way because you could just write which is all I've ever been used to. Fiction has been my home since I was about five years old. It's the place I feel most comfortable. It's all I've ever wanted to do with my life. 
but fiction very rarely puts food on the table. <laughs> and, and so so I was working at The Globe and I was writing American War almost exclusively between the hours of midnight and 5 a.m., which is a terrible system. I don't recommend it, but it was the only time I had to myself. I was trying to tell a very specific kind of story, but I was not worried about whether it was a publishable story. I was trying to get the residual effects of all the things I'd seen as a journalist out. And I had all the time in the world. Nobody knew this thing existed. Even I hadn't shown it to my wife. I hadn't shown it to anybody. And then one day I had a really bad day. You know, when journalism's going well, and the Globe does a lot of really good journalism, you feel like you're changing the world for the better simply by telling the truth, which is an incredibly empowering feeling. When journalism is going badly, you feel like you're rewriting press releases. And I had one of those days. So anyway, I had this long and somewhat disappointing conversation with one of my superiors. I hung up the phone. I said, to hell with it. And I emailed this literary agent who I'd met at a party about eight years earlier. And I said, listen, I know this is every agent's worst nightmare when a journalist says, I have a novel for you, but I have a novel for you. Could you take a look? And she agreed. And three days later, she came back and said, you know, I know who would like this. His name's Sonny. He works at Knopf. So subsequently, I looked up who the Sonny guy was and turned out to be Sonny Mehta, who runs Knopf. And I thought, well, we're wasting our time. I mean, this is... And we got very, very, very lucky. A few months later, he bought the book. He's been my editor. I count myself incredibly lucky to have met this man because he's the reason that this book is as good as it is. He's been doing this for 40 years. He was on the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. He was just in Sweden for Ishiguro's Nobel Prize. He, I'm the least of his concerns. But when he does take a look at the book, he made it so much better. But to get back to your question, the fundamental change was you work for a newspaper and your editor gets back to you and says, hey, can we get this voice and can we do this and, and can we get it five minutes ago? With the first meeting I had at Knopf when I went to New York, they said, you know, can you change this? Can you look at this? Can you look at this? Okay, we'll see you in six months. And I could not wrap my head around it. I was terrified that I would just switch to journalism mode and just do all of this stuff the night before, you know, wait five and a half months and then not do anything. So it took a lot of getting used to it. And even now, I'm, I'm much more comfortable with immediate deadlines and everybody freaking out than I am with, with long periods of time. It provides the momentum that gets things going and gets words on pages. Yeah, when you're as lazy as I am, you kind of, you know, you need that sort of the sword hanging over your head. I think it's called the creative process. You know, sure, has, yeah, no, everyone a lot has of things are own. called the creative process. <laughs> Tell me about the particular book that acted as inspiration to you when you were getting started in writing a novel. There's a number of books that, that stick out in my head when I was very young, and I was just starting to read, to be a reader. You know, for example, there was uh, Lord of the Flies, which was a book that I did not take seriously at all when they taught it to us. I was at a British school. We were the idiots who would always giggle in the back of the class and would not take anything seriously. And here they are presenting us with what I, you know, I read it years later and I reread it and with a masterpiece, you know, a masterpiece of subtlety and allegory. And, and of course, we can't get over these kids. We would do so much better if it was us on the island. Kids behaving badly. Yeah, exactly. Right. So that was my introduction to the fact that a book could have subtext and could have layers beneath layers. Little Women of All Books was this thing that I found in our school library. And it was my first experience of reading something that was completely alien to my own life. But the book that sticks out the most is The Good Earth by Pearl Buck. My mom had read it. I believe she had read it in translation in Arabic and had told me you should read this book. Uh, And it was the first time my mom had ever given me a book recommendation. So I picked this thing up and it's a small book. And I started reading it, and and the thing that got to me was how stripped of all ornament it was. It is pure storytelling. It's purely the story of this farmer. I was amazed at how little it took in terms of storytelling to capture me, to get me hooked. To this day, I'm afraid to go back and reread it, because I think I would reread it from a very different contextual standpoint, cultural standpoint. It's like certain records. You know how the best music you'll ever hear is when you're 12 years old and you never want to go back to those records again? 
it's sort of like that with this book because I remember the sensation of prior to having read that book, imagining that what it took to make a good book is lots of world building and you throw in the kitchen sink into the book, right? And this was just very plain and it changed the way I look at storytelling. As the pieces of American War came together, to your point about world building, which came first, the central character and her experiences or this scenario of a divided America in 2070? This is a very pretentious thing for me to say, but in my head, it's not a book about America. The America that exists in this book is an allegorical America. It's the table on which I'm laying a different kind of tablecloth. That's not a very clever thing on my part. This happens all the time. It just happens in the other direction. I didn't learn that much about North Africa from watching Casablanca. It was understood that the place was the table and the tablecloth being laid on top of it was someone else's story. And all I did was sort of invert that. And so the first thing, the very first thing when I started writing the book that was present was the thesis statement. There's no foreign form of suffering. Revenge is universal. Injustice makes us damaged and damaging the same way, regardless of where we come from or what we believe. And I still believe that thesis statement, but you can't really tell a good story when all you have is a thesis statement. And I was starting to find that out as I started writing. And then one day I was laying around in bed and uh, this image came into my head of a little girl pouring honey into the knots of the wood of her front porch. And that was the first time I saw Surat. And as soon as she showed up, everything else took a backseat. And her story was going to be the central story of American War. Once that happened, everything came together in a way. And I just went at it. And the story got done a few months after that. You're nominated for Kobo's Emerging Writers Prize for 2018. And as you say, this is the fourth book written, first book published. What propelled you through three books on the hard drive to continue to write the fourth one? What's the engine that you know, that keeps those words coming out? I think a subconscious certainty that this is the only thing I'm any good at. You know, I, I my wife and I took up guitar lessons recently. Turns out playing guitar is pretty hard, which we discovered about by a week and a half, we had put the guitars away and, and sort of given up on that entire endeavor because we were very lazy. Writing is the only thing that regularly kicks my ass, and yet I keep coming back to it, which leads me to believe that, and I, and I say this as somebody who's privileged enough to be able to decide what to do with his life. You know, I, I, I'm fortunate to have enough money in the bank that I can put food on the table, and I'm fortunate to be in this kind of position where I can say, well, what should I decide to do with my life? I am cognizant that many people don't have that opportunity. But if I'm thinking in that way, this thing that can continuously beats me up, and yet I keep coming back to it, leads me to believe that this is probably what I should be doing with my life. I'm not very good at much, but I'm a pretty good writer, and I my tolerance for, for suffering is highest when I'm writing. An excellent quality always <laughs> yeah, right. in a writer. Omar Alakad, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. That's it for this episode of Kobo in Conversation, a podcast about books and the authors who write them. To discover the books you just heard about, or to follow us, please visit www.kobo.com conversation. This podcast is produced at the Kobo Audiobook Studios here in Liberty Village in Toronto, Ontario, Canada.